Hello, and welcome to Walk and Talk. This eight-part series will look at life in UCC from the perspective of former students who went on to become major players on the national stage. By sharing their individual experiences, they'll paint not just a personal portrait of their younger selves, but also a broader picture of a shifting college landscape through the decades. This eight-part series invites past students of UCC back on campus to walk the grounds, relive their student days, and share their thoughts with the present-day student body. This week, Tracy Kennedy, educator. So Tracy Kennedy and principal at Carrignafoy Community College in Cove. So when I came up here and saw the quad for the very first time when I came up to do my matric back in the times of ancient history I was just so struck with how beautiful UCC is and I suppose I learned in my years since that it's not just a beautiful place it's a place where you can learn so much where you know there were a lot of lecturers who had a huge influence on me but I'll always remember the beauty of the place when I saw it first and thinking how much harder I'd have worked if I knew how lovely it was and how much I looked forward to coming here as a student. So I lived at home during my college years. I was the eldest in the family. I think my parents were probably a little bit overprotective. Um, And I lived at home. That was fine. There was a good bus route and all that. But I definitely missed out on elements of student life that I would have enjoyed if I had been living in Cork. So, you know, that's something I probably, if I had my time over again, I would change that, I think, because there's so much more to college life than just the, the academic side and the studies. And I definitely missed out on that. And there was a security, an added security, and I suppose I never had to worry about safety or, or anything like that. And I was, I would always have been a home bird, so, you know, it suited me to be secure in my home environment and, you know, not having to lug things around with me and all of that because I had them at home, the washing. <laughs> and, of course, like, there was money saved as well, though I suppose it was my parents' money as opposed to mine that was saved. But at the same time, you know, it, I wouldn't say it hugely... It was hugely detrimental to live at home or anything, but I do feel I missed out on experiences. So I studied English, French, Spanish and Latin in first arts. I'd always loved languages. Um, I'd always loved science as well. It was a real tough choice for me um, to choose, but I I really felt I wanted to continue with my studies of English and French. And I brought Spanish and Latin as well in first year, which I loved as well. And then I went on to do English and French in my degree, which proved useful for teaching later even though I wasn't really clear at that point what I wanted to do. Uh, well, long, long ago, I suppose, I, I would have been grown up in a family that was immersed in GAA. Um, the pitch in my home club in Kille is named after my uncle. It was just something that was always part of our lives in that small community. And so I would have been a supporter from a very early age, not really a player, just some kind of traumatic memories of trying to play camogie, but nothing major. But I've always loved administration. And when a time came that my club asked me to get involved as a juvenile secretary and it just brought together my love of GA and administration went on to become secretary of my club then I started attending our divisional board as a representative of my club and that's what really got me started I became PRO and later secretary of our divisional board and then PRO of the county board I was the first woman really to hold well I was the first woman to hold any of those positions and loved being PRO, it was a brilliant experience at a time when things like social media was really just taking off and there were huge opportunities to build engagement and so on. And then I went on to vice chair and finally chair of the county board and I finished up 
um, in December 2020. <laughs> I finished my term as chair of the county board. I'm still involved. I'm, I'm our central council delegate and I'm also vice chair of my club at the moment as well. It was really exciting and I suppose when I started off as PRO I didn't maybe use my female voice as strongly as I should have. I And this would be the case I think for a lot of women who would be the first or one of the few. You're more sort of like, well, you know, I'm here as a sports person as opposed to a woman, you know. But then I began to realise, and mainly from talking to other women who would, you know, people would randomly say to me, you know, it's brilliant to see women involved. I remember during one of the times of some kind of bad news on the GA front I was in Tesco and there was a woman behind me in the queue and she's like are you Tracy Kennedy and I thought she was going to attack me you know for <laughs> something that had gone wrong and I was like yeah and she said, I just think it's brilliant to see women involved and I would have had that from a lot of women and made me realise that you know actually I should be pointing out that there are very few women involved in the GA and there are still disappointingly few women involved in the GA so it was an opportunity maybe to use my voice to highlight that as well you know because I think at club level, there are loads of women involved, making a huge contribution, but as you go up through the ranks, there are fewer of them. So it was great to have the opportunity to use my voice. Now, I would have to say I never had any negative experiences um, as, as a woman in the GA, except maybe for just that it was a lonely place when you're the only one. Um, but other than that, my experiences would have been very positive. But as an association, the GA really, really needs to look at itself and get more women involved. It's vital. We've just come off the quad and I'm looking at the entrances to the Boo Lecture Theatres where I spent many happy undergrad hours and also the main rest where I had my first experience of chili con carne which was certainly unheard of in my mother's repertoire and I see the shuppa there to my right where I would have bought far too much chocolate um, way back along in my early years here and obviously we're, we're just outside the Boole Library as well which is one of my favourite places when I was in college. Now when I came back for postgrad the new entrance was there so I'm, it's, it's kind of hard in some ways to remember what it was like before that but I definitely, the library was my second home when I was here because the fact that I wasn't living in Cork so I didn't have a house to go back to if I had a few hours between lectures or whatever and I would spend that time in the Boole. Um, uh, Q, Q plus three, ha ha, <laughs> moment of enlightenment. Q plus three was my favourite part of the library. I love those slanty windows, there was loads of light. And you know, if you got in there and could kind of bag yourself a table under those windows and people were so good, you could leave your stuff there all day, come back in between lectures or after your lunch or whatever and everything would be still there. So yeah, I spent a lot of time there and I love books. So it was just wonderful to be surrounded by them. And again, these are places that have more more recent associations for me and also older associations for me. Um, the Honan was obviously a place I've always liked, you know, it's beautiful building again. I'm not particularly religious, but the building is beautiful and we'd have spent time there, you know, it's just a calm, quiet space. And then of course I've had really happy occasions there. My, my best friend and my sister both got married there over the years. Uh, my sister's wedding was the most recent I was at here. So again, you know, really positive associations. The student centre, was being built when I was an undergrad here so I didn't really get I suppose to experience the full the full wonder of that facility as an undergrad but would have been there when I came back from my postgrads and so on and you know it's a fantastic facility I've had a had a couple of graduations there as well and in that building and it's you know wonderful to see how the campus has expanded in such a sympathetic and lovely way really since I was here first as an undergrad. 
I've done I did two postgrad diplomas and two um, two masters. So, so yeah, four. I've been back, I've I've been here five times. Five times. <laughs> I'm, not finished, yet. I'm not finished yet. I'm not finished yet. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to do a PhD sometime. Um, so yeah, I it took me a couple of years to decide what I wanted to do. So I did a few things. I did the higher diploma in business and financial information systems. Wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, and I felt there was a gap in my knowledge there. But eventually I settled on the higher diploma in education and that was my route. So I was lucky enough to get a job in the town nearest where I live, really, once I finished college. And I taught for 16 years in Yall before I got, I just, I suppose, trying to branch out. A friend of mine had been, had got a job as deputy principal and she said to me, I think you'd love this. And I said, well, yeah, maybe I'll start applying for things. And I was lucky enough to be appointed deputy principal of Cargilline Community School in 2016 and had three wonderful years there. But it was a bit of a trek from home. And I had said to myself that I might look at places nearer home. And so the principalship came up in Cargilline Community College in Cove in 2019. And I was lucky enough to... Uh, be appointed to that role and it's it's brilliant it's a really interesting and challenging role the school is growing and developing it's a desh school so we have a lot of challenges but we have um we're getting a new building a, a, an extension and and a rebuild so it's a really exciting time to be principal in cove uh, very challenging but <laughs> exciting we are standing here now just inside the main door of the Honan. I'm looking at the, the um, signs of the zodiac there in the beautiful mosaic floor and the river of knowledge in the fish and so on as you go up the aisle. And I'm very much reminded, I think, of the last time I was here, which was the day of my sister's wedding when I was a bridesmaid and uh, going up the aisle, trying to be very careful not to trip over myself or my shoes or anything else. And it was a lovely day, but also an emotional one because our dad is dead. And so my mother gave my sister away. And it was a very, very beautiful um, occasion to be part of. Uh, even though it was raining. <laughs> it wasn't too bad, but uh, it was lovely. It was really nice. So it's lovely to have those memories here. When I was an undergrad, this was an oasis of calm, you know, and if you just needed to get away from everything, it was lovely to come and sit here just to, to be quiet for a little while. So, and it was, you know, because it's so central, I think, to the main part of the campus, it was an easy place to access. You know, there weren't, these were the days before the student centre now, and you know, there weren't as many places maybe where you could go and uh, just have a quiet cup of tea or whatever the case may be. So it was always nice to have somewhere like this to come to. And it's so beautiful with its, uh, the stained glass windows and the beautiful mosaics. It's a really lovely building. In the following extract from Church, Art and Architecture, Virginia Tian, co-author of The Honan Chapel, A Golden Vision, expands on the significance of the Honan to UCC and its history. The history of this site doesn't start in 1916. The university has a connection with this part of the campus going back to the mid-19th century. In the 1860s, the Church of Ireland bought a patch of land and built a hostel for young men who were attending Queen's College. That building was then purchased by the Franciscan Order, who operated the building also as a hostel for young Roman Catholic male students. That business fell into abeyance for a time and the Honan uh, family bequeathed money to the, to the university authorities, €10,000, and with that money, the then-president, Sir Bertram Windle, decided to establish a trust 
which would allow the purchase of that building and its refurbishment. And also some of the money was invested for scholarships called the Honan Scholarships. Um, and that trust still operates. I know that historically the Honan family were originally from County Limerick, Limerick City, I think. And there is a, a Honan Quay now in Limerick City. Um, the Honans came to Cork in the 18th century. They were extremely successful butter merchants um, and they're very generous philanthropists and benefactors to the city of Cork. The last surviving members of the family, Robert, Isabella and Matthew, were the benefactors of this chapel. Um, they left their money in the hands of their solicitor, Sir John O'Connell, who was a very enlightened man, um, a close friend of Sir Bertram Windle, whom I've already mentioned, the president of the university. O'Connell was very active in political affairs and in national affairs and is relevant to our visit here today in Irish artistic affairs. He was a member of the Board of Governors of the National Gallery. He was active in the arts side of the RDS and other national organisations. He was uh, had very strong views about Irish arts and crafts and his views and those of Sir Bertram Windle shaped the philosophy underpinning the Honan but most especially, I suppose, the wonderful artwork which we see here in the chapel today. Sir John O'Connell had very clear views about how this chapel should be designed and particularly its decoration. Um, at that time in Ireland, there had been a lot of church building in the 19th century and many of the newer churches relied heavily on an Italianate design, which really was out of context within the Irish landscape. And also many of the, the much, a lot of the work done on these churches did not in any way represent a traditional form of artistic expression or indeed represent the work of Irish craftsmen. And in a letter to Sir Bertram Wendell, O'Connell wrote, his desire is that all work was to be carried out in Ireland and as far as possible carried out in Cork by Cork labour and with materials obtained for the city from the city or county of Cork. It is an additional gratification to me and will, I am sure, be to you that the ex expenditure of the necessary monies will lead to considerable employment and considerable amount of employment for Cork workmen. Um, and I think this is very important because um, at the time I mentioned the, the amount of building that was going on in Ireland and the regrettable reliance on uh, an underconfident form of artistic expression. And this chapel very much represents a confident new Ireland, a new definition of Irish identity, which looked to our own past and our own forms of expression, which were very well regarded in earlier centuries on a world stage. And it was both Wendell's and O'Connell's wish to represent this again in every way in the chapel. Architecturally, the chapel is very simple. There aren't any any extraneous forms of decoration. Every single piece that is in the collection and in the chapel has a function which is relevant to the practice of worship. Like so many items in this collection, um, and by that I mean the individual objects which are were made for the practice of worship, there's a dedication to the memory of those who gave the money, the Fahonan family, and those who were responsible for the commission, Bertram Wendell and Sir John O'Connell. And I think there is this very interesting and poignant inscription 
um, on the inside of a chasuble, a cloth of gold chasuble, which is very beautiful. And it reads, Of your charity, pray for the souls of Matthew Robert and Isabella Honan, the founders of this chapel and hostel. Pray for the welfare here and hereafter of the warden and students of the Honan Hostel. Pray for the welfare here and hereafter of Sir John O'Connell, who built this chapel, and of his wife, Dame Mary O'Connell. Pray for the soul of Ethel Josephine Scally, who died on the 28th of July, 1915, who designed this chasuble, and for the welfare here and hereafter of Barry Michael Egan, who made this, and for all who worked on it, namely M. Barrett, Enna Hart, A. Calnan, K. Allman, M. Desmond, M. Toomey, Enna Hearn, M. County, K. Kramer, G. Good, M. E. Jenkins and N. Barry. The making of this chasuble was ended in the workshop of Barry Michael Egan in Patrick Street in the city of Cork on the 25th day of September 1916. And I should say that the 25th day of, this, of September is also the feast of St. Finbar, who's the patron saint of this chapel and whose statues uh, stands over the doorway. It's very interesting to have the names of the workers and particularly as the workers here were all women because frequently in the recording of art history there are very few references to women artists and there were so many women active in the field of craft work and design um, today and historically. Regrettably their memory is frequently forgotten. Another uh, textile which is not on view and is in storage is a textile which was made for uh, furnishing the altar. These were uh, changed and for different liturgical seasons and there's a big altar frontal called an antependia in black which is a beautiful um, black background with silver and purple stitching. The, the cross in the front is modelled on the cross of Tully Lees, um, an ancient Irish monument. And on the reverse of the textile reads the following. Pray for Katrina Nick who designed this frontal, and for Evelyn Leeson, Kate Dempsey, Josephine Mulhall, Siobhan Nidillon, Christina Fanning, Mary Perry, Sheila Stapleton and Mary Curley, who together made it, Dunimer Guild, Dublin, 1916. There are so many benefits to being involved in sport and what it brings through to your education. And, you know, one of the things that always disturbed me over the years was when parents would say, oh, he's giving up the hurling now for the leaving cert or she's not going to play football this year because of the leaving cert. That would horrify me, you know, because it's the most stressful time in that child's life and they need the escape and the balance that sports provide. And you can fit them both both in and in fact one will benefit the other. I think we're all very aware now of the benefits of, you know, physical movement on your learning and and cognition and so on and I just don't feel there is anything better a young person can do for their overall health and well-being and their education than be involved in sport and you know there's all kinds of levels at which you can be involved in sport and it's not you don't always have to be highly competitive there are, I think far greater variety of options for people to be involved in now than there were say 20 years ago especially for people like me who grew up out in the country and had very few options I feel very strongly about you know the benefits to girls particularly and I think for 
parents or for girls themselves, there is something for you. Like I would never have been massively athletic um, or hugely involved in sport. And yet in my later life, I've discovered a love for jogging, which is like it's the most simple thing you could do. There's no equipment required except a decent pair of shoes, you know. And uh, things like that, there is something. I love yoga, and again, these are things I came to in, in later life. There is something, there is some means that you can find to move your body that will benefit you hugely. So I, I just, I, I think for schools, it's really important to facilitate sport all you can. And look, I know as an educational administrator, it's not always easy to do that, but it is just so beneficial to students. And now, obviously, not everyone's going to be involved in sport. And again, there's an onus on us to find ways to support young people who have other interests. But sport is so good in so many ways for you. I couldn't advocate highly enough for it. I, I think there's, there's a lot of research done in it. And, you know, it seems to be harder f- to keep girls involved in sport. And maybe that's because we make sport too competitive. You know, and not everybody, and boys, it's the same for boys, not everybody wants to be involved at that hugely competitive level that's going to involve hours and hours of your time. But we really need to focus, I think, on finding the enjoyment in it. Um, And I suppose realising the huge benefits it has to us. And I think particularly for girls with, you know, body image and so on. And, you know, we've all been there, been that teenager who was, you know, super conscious Whereas if you're involved in sport um, or, or, you know, various sport type activities, it becomes more about what your body is capable of than what it looks like. And I just think that's something, you know, that's something I've learned now, you know, in my mid 40s. And I wish I knew it in my 20s, you know, or my teens. And I think, you know, that is one of the benefits that girls who play sport have more, I suppose they're more comfortable in their bodies and I think that's a really important thing in terms of confidence and so on but it's also about skills and determination and dealing with wins and losses because you'll have them in your life either way Um, teamwork all of these things are skills that networking that you learn as part of your involvement in sport you know even in individual pursuits so it's so so important if you can at all have the opportunity to be involved in, in something like that you know it's like anything you will fit in the things in your life that you want to fit in so it's about managing how you do that I I remember hearing um, Tina Sargent the Irish hockey player saying you know that it's whatever thing you're doing at that time be fully in it so like if that's if you're studying for two hours and then you're going training for an hour or whatever the case may be be fully present in the thing you're doing at that time and then move on to the next thing but look, I'm no, I'm no example of balance <laughs> in any way. But, you know, I suppose it is about prioritising and finding the time for the things that are important to you and good for you. So we are at the back of the North Wing now, um, outside the, the back of the Ola Maxima, which is a place I spent some time when I was here. And we're looking out over the, the Western Road and, and the city as well, which is lovely. Um, and, you know, all the way down to the river down there. To, again, a really lovely part of the college. You can hear the birds singing even, you know, as we stand here. That's really nice. My first memory of it is probably I, I won a prize for Spanish in first year and the prizes were presented here and I got book vouchers and wow. <laughs> See, that's the type of student I was now. I was delighted with book vouchers. Uh, they were my prize. So that was in the Automax and it's such a lovely room. You know, it, it, for me now, when I think about it, I associated with Hogwarts and Harry Potter, even though those weren't thought of when I was undergrad. I think I did exams here as well. 
um, and I was here in, in later life at, at a function, maybe a GA-related thing, I think, that I was here. But again, just a lovely room, lovely part of the college, a really nice place to be. I think the openness in our society today is absolutely wonderful, you know, in terms of maybe helping to deal with the issues that, that people have around their mental health. But, you know, if you take it, say schools today in order of the type of school I'm in it's a Cork ETB school it's multi-denominational but like we're so open and inclusive um, in terms of you know w whether it's it's gender or whether it's additional needs or whatever the case may be and I think that must make it easier but at the same time there's no doubt about it that social media has had a hugely detrimental effect on the mental health of young people and I know we'll say we lived in a more repressive society, it was a different world, but I would not be a teenager today, even to be 30 years younger. I would not be a teenager today. I think the challenges teenagers face are huge. And I think there's probably a bit of a disconnect then between people of my generation who are running schools and yet who didn't experience these type of pressures ourselves. I, I learn from our students every single day you know, in terms of the challenges that they face and how this impacts on their mental health. So I think as a society, we need to take a look at ourselves. I mean, there's, I, I make a very unpopular <laughs> statement now and say that like mobile phones and children just do not go together. Smartphones and children do not go together. And um, there's some very interesting studies out there that show the detrimental effect. And yet they've become a need in our lives. Um, I remember doing a bit in... I used to teach CSPE, uh, Civic, Social and Political Education, and I remember doing a thing one day about wants and needs, and all the kids put the mobile phone in need, you know, and I said, but you know, I grew up without a mobile phone, so how can it be a need? But they can't imagine their lives without it. And, like, if I'm honest, can I imagine my life without my mobile phone, you know? But at the same time, we're adults and we're better able to deal with these things. So there are a lot of issues there that we need to consider um, in terms of supporting our students mental health and I would worry that maybe we're not the best place people to do that because we didn't experience these challenges ourselves so there's an onus on us to be open and try and figure out what life is like for our students and understand that when we're looking at how we can support them. The songs of, of, of my time we'll say in, in, as an undergrad in the early 90s and, and postgrad as well in the 90s was the uh, Proclaimers and 500 miles. <laughs> I don't think there was a night out <laughs> that didn't involve that song. <laughs> so <laughs> that's one that I would definitely associate with uh, my college years anyway. If I get drunk, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who gets drunk next to you. And if I heave up, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's heavering to you. But I Every penny on to you When I 
been listening to Walk and Talk. This eight-part series looks at life in UCC from the perspective of former students who went on to become major players on the national stage. By sharing their individual experiences, they paint not just a personal portrait of their younger selves, but also a broader picture of a shifting college landscape through the decades. For more details on the series, search for UCC 98.3 FM wherever you get your podcasts. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.